This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Alex Fetsky, thanks very much for uh, for coming on Talk Your Book. You're our first crypto expert to uh, to take the plunge, so really appreciate you giving us some of your time. Thank you, Mr. Judd. I feel like I've got some big shoes to fill here, man. <laughs> and I thought maybe you could start by talking a little bit about Amber App and uh, how your involvement has come about with that. Yeah, cool. So, like, really briefly, I a couple of years ago was running around telling everyone, "Oh, you should buy this thing called Bitcoin," and everyone was kind of looking at me like I had three heads. And you know, the the, the few people that I did manage to kind of show them the light back then um the the biggest challenges were like where do i go how do i buy this thing you know what is it and i don't know what what one friend was like man you're entrepreneurial go build something and i was like yeah okay maybe i will so i thought of this idea of you know can i just build an app which can help people dollar cost average into into bitcoin um you know being this scarce asset that this sort of reinvention of money which we'll go into a little bit later but yeah amber's just this app that you download um it just makes accumulating some bitcoin really easy it works like a savings account you know you, you give it like two variables which is basically you know five bucks a day you know every day or, or whatever sort of variable you want to set so an amount and a frequency and it sort of like puts aside some money for you but denominates it in bitcoin so it's like it's a savings account that's not losing value surprise surprise um, which is quite unique in today's world with strange rates and you know negative interest rates and God knows what else is um, is going on. So yeah, that's basically the crux of the app. It's a Bitcoin accumulation app or a Bitcoin savings app. And now it's a it's an incredibly deep topic we're going to dive into today. And some of our viewers are uh, generally more focused on on stock investing. So. By way of background, I thought maybe the best place to start as you go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole would be uh, exploring money in and of itself in a fiat system and what money actually is. For sure. So, so I think it's it's really interesting. When, like I, I've been on loads of Bitcoin podcasts, and I, I was on I was on one uh, non-Bitcoin podcast like last year with um, with Sean Puri, who was actually the the co-founder of Bebo. If anyone remembers, like. Bebo before MySpace, and and it was funny because I had to kind of frame it uh, for his listeners at that time because most people who've come from an investing background they they sort of view Bitcoin almost in the in the mental model of of a company and they're like well you know it's got no earnings and this and that and they and they kind of write it off but I, I implore anyone listening to this at the moment is to sort of remove the the mental model of viewing this as a company or as a share um, and think about it more like um, almost like the internet It's like, you know, you, you don't have, you can't buy shares in the internet. Like it's, it's this, it's this open network and trying to create a value framework for it is really, really difficult. So um, we, we kind of, that, that's, I guess, one helpful mental model. And then I'll kind of introduce this concept of money now, which I think is really, really important. Um, I, I, for me, it's really rare to, to find anyone and talk to them and get them to, you know, define what money is so so maybe let's just make this interactive so chris in, in your sort of i guess may, maybe tell me two things if before you heard about bitcoin and any of that sort of stuff how would you have defined money in in your head like back in the day say a couple of years ago 
I would have said it was something you could exchange in return for goods or services. Okay, cool. And and these days, has that sort of evolved a little bit or? Uh, I still think it's something you can exchange for goods and services, but I have mm -hmm. a deeper appreciation for how that money is created. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So what I kind of, you know, one of the, what, what you're defining there is like something that can be exchanged for goods and services. I, I kind of define that as one of the functions of money. So a, a lot of people, um, you know, generally that that's probably the most common definition is, you know, something that I can exchange for other things for goods and services. And, and that is, you know, correct fundamentally, but money I like to think in a deeper sense is this almost like a fabric that binds human beings together. And I'm, I'm going to get a little bit cosmic here. So bear with me is, um, is this, when you, me, and everyone else participate in society, we all perform different functions. You know, we we add, we have input into society. We all add different value. We, you know, we we extract different value. We all do different things, and we need a mechanism via which to measure that. So, you know, I've spoken to many people, and they're like, "Oh, you know, the world would be better if we didn't have money." And I always kind of come back to, well, it's not really true because human beings will always have to create a mechanism via which to exchange their respective input so you know you you play footy i write articles and i rant on twitter you know someone else makes shirts someone else makes iphones like we all do these things which we all subjectively value differently so we need a mechanism through which to you know trade these things it's not like you know i i can't go and i don't know write an app and then trade you know, access to my app with a farmer for, you know, 18 apples. Like that, that just doesn't work that way that you can't create complexity in society. So we will always default to a, a mechanism through which to, uh, through which we can trade and subjectively um, measure our inputs in society. Without so, so money, that, there'd, be a, there'd be a lot of big angry guys getting a lot of jobs done for them because everyone was terrified of them. So as a, as a lover, not a fighter, I'm very happy for uh money to be around absolutely M money is like literally the thing that allows us to cooperate so, so i kind of call it the ultimate tool of human cooperation and and what it is at its very core is um is our labor um or our work in like a crystallized form so you know i go and perform something you go and perform something um and then at some point in time we can exchange the product of our labor um at the at the respective valuation so you know i might value a shirt more than bob down the street you know so i'm willing to trade more of my labor more of the value that i've input in society with that so anyway with that in mind you know it's really important then to understand is like money has been many different things over the centuries like you know in the beginning a lot of people think we started off with barter like you know trading apples for bananas but that wasn't exactly true the original money was you know promises like you go and pick the berries i'll go you know hunt the rabbit down you clean the fucking cave and you know we've got like we, we can trade promises and then we realize that okay to get out of the cave we need to kind of record these promises somewhere so we you know the first money was actually little writing on a ledger like the that that's sort of what we did and then we went to commodity money so we started trading things like um you know cattle or salt or things like that but and, and we kept sort of money kept progressing to better things because Money is this concept that we all converge upon to say, all right, what object best represents the the product of my labor or, or my time? And we ended up over thousands of years converging on this yellow shiny rock we all know as gold because it had some really, really good uh, properties that were objectively 
better than other things. So like, you know, money needs to be durable. There's no point in holding all your money in salt because if it rains tomorrow, there goes, you know, your life's work. Um, you know, you don't want to hold your money in shells because if you work all year inland and then you go retire on the beach, every bum there's got shells. So, you know, there's no scarcity. Uh, you want it to be divisible because, you know, the this is sort of one of the reasons why we had um, coinage and notes issued against gold was because gold wasn't very divisible. As, as society grew um, and you sort of got this fixed or, or this scarce element in gold, if you wanted to buy something small, you had to like shave gold dust off. So, so that kind of stuff didn't work. So you have all these um, things. Now, now gold really won, I, I would say, I would argue for two primary reasons. One was um, it's scarcity. Like you couldn't just print gold. Like if you, if you remember the alchemist's dream of trying mm. to create, you know, something, it, it, trying to turn things into gold. So you couldn't do that, number one. But number two, it had a really unique property of um gold is the only inert metal that we have like it doesn't corrode it doesn't like it stands the test of time so it's perfectly durable um it's recognizable and it's fungible so gold is the same whether you're in australia peru germany asia it doesn't matter so it, it ended up the market chose uh, gold organically and then we then had to build derivatives off gold to represent um the gold because it was you know a bit clunky from a divisibility and portability perspective where things went sour was, you know, these institutions that originally stored the gold and issued the certificate decided that, hey, um, no one's going to know how much gold we got in here. So let's just, you know, hand this guy two slips or three slips. And over time, you know, some institutions were trusted, some were not. You know, we've had all sorts of, you know, th these institutions and known as banks, right, is, you know, they went bust. You know, people realized that, hey, you know, these guys are issuing more paper than the actual money they hold. Um, so, so we've sort of gone through multiple inflations and all this sort of stuff. And over time, obviously, governments have kind of co-opted the right to issue money. And originally, in the early days, it was issued against the amount of gold they had. And then really kind of glossing over all the history, in 1971, something interesting happened was Nixon kind of pulled the US dollar, which was the most powerful money at the time, off the gold standard. And, you know, since then, we've seen the appreciation of every asset class uh, across the board um, with the increase in the total money supply and the complete deviation away from this, the original essence of what money was, which is it's supposed to map back to your labor and your labor is effectively your time and your energy. So, so we've kind of distorted the entire mechanism through which human beings can cooperate. Like now you and I, we have to trade our time and energy for money Whereas there's a small subset in society called central banks and governments who can just create it out of thin air. And you start to get this real like rift in society. And that is actually what I believe is at the core of all the inequality. And you've got like asset price inflation and, you know, so it's, it's just, it just messes up everything. So anyway, that, that's kind of like a overview without getting too deeper down this rabbit hole. But, you know, money is extremely important for society to function. Um, you, you cannot have society like, you know, it's, 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 um, what's the word? It's anachronistic to think that money cannot exist in a society. So it'll always exist. The question is the more, the more functional, the money, the closer to its attributes that it has, the visibility, portability, scarcity, recognizability, um, fungibility. So th those key attributes, the better will be able to perform the three functions of money, which is storing a value, exchanging, so medium of exchange and a unit of account 
then you have something that can be used as money. Um, and at the moment, we live in a world where we're losing the store of value function. You know, our money is inflated away. Um, the medium exchange function is under attack because these days you basically have to beg permission to send money overseas and all this sort of stuff. Um, and the unit of account thing, it's there, obviously, because we measure everything in money. So that sort of is by default still in existence. But money has lost like complete meaning these days because it's just issued by someone's decree. And, you know, we have this thing called Bitcoin that's come along that embodies all the original elements of what money should be. And it's provi- it's proving to be the, the, the challenger to what is the biggest market in the world, which is money. So anyway, I'll, I'll kind of end that there. Hopefully haven't fried anyone's noodle. Uh, in, in the process. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, I mean, that, that gives us an, a helicopter view of, of money. And I'm sure everyone watching this would know of Bitcoin and have some idea in their own minds, at least, of, of what it is. But how would you articulate what actually Bitcoin is, apart from what purpose it can actually serve, just on a technical level? What is it? Sure. So, so I guess... In the beginning, I said money kind of started off as promises. And then we like the first writing or the first um, form of anything that we find in like the earliest cave walls was people like marking down like a tally of stuff that people did. So money kind of started off as a ledger. And here we are full circle. And we've come back to this ledger, but now in a digital form that is immutable, that is run on hundreds of thousands of servers around the world that somehow irrespective of the fact that each server is run independently reaches consensus every 10 minutes. That's Mm. the sort of the blockchain piece. And now we've actually got a global ledger that we know exactly how much money there is, what the transactions are. We know the rules of the game. We can opt in or we can opt out. It's completely voluntary. And the the world is obviously finding value in this thing. Like the the first, you know, recorded Bitcoin transaction uh, was, I mean, Technically, it was Marty Malmi who traded, I think, $5 for, I think it was 1,000 Bitcoin. But the one that most people know about is the pizza, um, Laszlo uh, Hanyech, I think his name is. But yeah, so it was two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. So it was valued at, you know, 0.08 cents. Um, you know, so that today, I think, is what, 2 billion, 2.6 billion no Australian dollars. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was it was this thing that nobody said, this is what Bitcoin's valued at. It was, it, it's, it's almost uh, like, I always tell people like when you think about how, you know, Bitcoin's come to the valuation today is imagine if you could go back 5,000 years and you found a piece of gold on the ground while everyone was still trading in shells and salt and things like that. And you went to buy a chicken um, and, you know, you're like, I'll pay for it with this rock. Thanks. And someone's like, the hell is that? You know, you're like, well, it's gold. And they're like, what can I do with it? And you're like, well, you can, you know, you can trade it. And they're like, well, I can't eat it. I can't drink it. I can't, you know, wear it. Piss off. So it's, um, there's like, in the beginning, it sounds crazy, but, you know, gold ended up emerging, not by someone's decree, but just through what I call economic Darwinism. You want to hold the product of your labor. You want to hold your wealth in something that is best representative of the, you know, these attributes of money. And that's what's happening with Bitcoin is more and more people, The like what we're seeing with Bitcoin's price rise over time is the world converging on the best form of money. And we are still so early, like it took mm-hmm. gold 5,000 years practically to kind of emerge. And Bitcoin is sort of this, this better form of money, which has all the attributes of gold. It's, I mean, an even in better degree. So it's 
completely scarce. Like you, nobody can print any more of this. Like it's codified. This is how much there is. Um, if I want to change that, I'm free to do that. But as soon as I change the rules, I actually create my own network. So I'm off. So it's kind of like I've created, um, you know, Bitcoin Alex's version. And then the question is, who's going to follow me? So it's like Bitcoin's ultimate security is in the fact that it's completely open and that anyone can copy it. Um, and I kind of take my economic mass in my own direction. Um, so let's talk but, about, dig into that for a second, a little yeah, bit sure, sure, sure. In, in that it's that, that length of the blockchain is that what, mm -hmm. what gives it proof that this Bitcoin is what it says it is. Could you maybe walk through in layman's terms how it's unhackable due to the, the consensus reached by the various computers spread across all the world and working out which blockchains existed for longer? Sure, sure. So, so, so it's actually, so it's part of the length, but there's also how many nodes are running which set of rules. So if you can think of Bitcoin, the, you know, the set of rules on Bitcoin almost is like the constitution. Yeah. And Bitcoin's got its constitution. It's got these sets of rules. So there's you know, 21 million Bitcoin. A block is found every 10 minutes. You use a SHA-256, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's got these rules. Now, you can um, voluntarily choose to run those rules via a node or via a miner, and you can help validate the, the transactions on the network following those rules. Now, if you want to, you can go and create your own copy of Bitcoin with, its, with your own rules and say, look, I don't think 21 million is enough. I want 42 million. You can go and do that, but you then no longer sync up with, this, with the same network. You've actually created your own network. So Bitcoin's defense is in its openness is now like, you know, and this is sort of what fries people's noodles sometimes mm. when they think about this, because it's not this central system. Hacking doesn't even come into the equation because there's nothing to hack. Yes. Bitcoin's code is completely open. It's open source. It doesn't matter. You can go in and change whatever you want, but you actually opt yourself out of the network in the process. And I think that's um, what's, what frightens people early on when they feel that that scarcity idea, when you see Ripple and Ethereum and Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin and whatever else, it, it's, it's easy initially to feel, well, how scarce is it when every Tom, Dick and Harry can start up a, a new coin tomorrow and even a new form of Bitcoin tomorrow. But the scarcity <laughs> is in that actual blockchain, if you like, as opposed to all cryptocurrencies. Exactly. It's in the network itself. So this is the one network that runs this set of rules. And it is the one network that you know that nothing can be changed. Whereas all these other networks that end up forking off basically, or that go and create a copy of it, they're all run by someone. And, and this yeah. is what I always come back to when I kind of describe Bitcoin to people is the innovation wasn't blockchain. Blockchains existed for 20, 30, 40 years. Like timestamp databases are in no way interesting. Like, and, and there's no application outside of, you know, it's, relevance in bitcoin is like one piece of the recipe that that where it really matters like it, like blockchain is such a boring concept but in the context of bitcoin alongside proof of work alongside you know the solving of the byzantine generals problem which is how do we reach consensus amongst parties who do not know each other like that mm -hmm. that is the first time that's that's the hardest mathematical problem one of sorry one of the hardest mathematical pro mathematical problems in history is how do you get um convergence amongst people who don't know each other who might have an, an advantage of screwing someone over. And like Bitcoin is like, almost call it like the prospering of the commons. It's the first time you work in your own self-interest, but benefit the entire network. Yeah. So Bitcoin's zero to one moment, if I'm gonna quote Peter Thiel here, is, um, is it created a network that achieves autonomous consensus for the first time in history. And through doing that, it created for the first time ever, 
digital scarcity, a network with a finite set of units that is that runs on that network. And that right there is the innovation. And my argument is that's the biggest innovation we've had since probably fire. Like it's bigger than the wheel, it's bigger than the internet, it's bigger than electricity, it's bigger than all of that because money is the fabric that binds us. And now we finally have something that actually maps directly to time and energy. That is profound to me because that unlocks our ability now to cooperate um, as opposed to beat each other over the head and take each other's stuff. And so it's not... It's not the complexity of the technology that is what's so special about Bitcoin. It's that digital scarcity piece. And yeah. it's it's a finished product effectively. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. Like Bitcoin hasn't had any downtime. Like, um, you know, in the early days when Satoshi and the guys were first messing around with it, you know, there was some problems in how some of the nodes were running the software and there was some weird things like that. But I think, you know, Bitcoin's the only network that, you know, I think to date it's 99.999% uptime or whatever it is. So it's like, it runs globally 24 seven. Um, no one runs the show, you know, the, the way it changes and everything like that or updates to the, to the code. Like, and, and it's, I, I need to be careful here not to confuse people anymore, but the Bitcoin code just doesn't get updated willy nilly. Like proposals are put through, which then, you know, are reviewed on a peer reviewed basis by, you know, everyone, um, who's part of the Bitcoin uh, developer network, basically, which is this open network. Anyone can be a developer around the world. And a change is only pushed through in Bitcoin when every single developer that looks at it, you know, is approves it. And then every node operator also needs to then run it. And then every miner then needs to put their hash power, which is billions of dollars of hash power behind that. So it's like this thing that you've, you've got, like, I mean, it's hard enough to get five mates to catch up, you know, and choose a time to like, you know, to coordinate five people to have dinner. Try and coordinate a network with hundreds of thousands and millions of users all around the world that is traded 24-7, that, you know, moves trillions of dollars in value around, like try and get that to change. So, so th this is where like, I think a lot of people miss that, you know, we've created a digital network that, like I said, re reaches autonomous consensus and has digital scarcity as its cornerstone. And, and you know, I, I still hear people say, oh, Bitcoin's boring. I've, you know, found something else. It's like, wow, like we just found the philosopher's stone and, you know, people are sort of walking right by it because it looks like a stone, you know? It's, it's so I, I find that really, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a profound invention. And, it's all of those things combined together that make Bitcoin special. Going and changing one of those, I always say is almost like, I did a talk a couple of years ago where I kind of said, you know, blockchain is a joke, you know, the future's on Bitcoin. And it was at a blockchain conference that didn't make too many people happy, but whatever. Um, I, I kind of said that a lot of the blockchain people, they come into, they see Bitcoin, they're like, oh, well, I like this part here. So I like this blockchain piece. And they kind of take that out of context and they say, all right, I'm going to apply blockchain to like tracking the provenance of lettuce. It's like, all right, man. And they, you know, they go ahead and do this. But to me, I kind of look at that as if Bitcoin is a cake and it's got all these ingredients um, and you kind of take one ingredient out and then go and market it as a better cake, you know, you're not selling a cake, you know, you're selling scrambled eggs, you know, like it's a completely different thing. It doesn't matter. And the big the, the market Bitcoin is going for is the market for money, which is the biggest market on the planet because everything's priced in money. So, All right. 
So that's the the new. We spent a bit of time in the new age tech world. Let's get people back to the mm-hmm. the old fiat world. Yes. How, how is money created? Well, these days, um, I don't think anyone really knows. Um, but what we assume is that um, some central bank or a bureaucrat um, or a group of them decide that hey, the economy is not doing so well. So the solution, of course. Um, in the central banker's mind is that we should either, you know, we, they've got a couple of levers that they can pull. They can lower interest rates. They can, you know, uh, you know, buy debt um, or they can literally just increase the money supply. And these days, generally, the, the easiest thing to do is to increase the money supply or to, to buy financial assets, which inadvertently increases the money supply anyway. And they think that solves the problem. It's kind of like a you know, almost like a junkie taking more drugs because it makes them feel better in the moment. And they're sort of kicking the can down the road of where the real problem is, which is economies and, you know, the society only grows when the productive capacity of the individuals in society actually increases. Not when you, you know, create just more money out of thin air. That that's like, you know, if we need to build a house, you know, you need more workers. You don't need to just give people more rulers. <laughs> it's kind of it's a bit ridiculous. So these days, the way we, the way governments seem to approach uh, money is by creating more rulers or creating more inches, which doesn't make any sense. So that that's kind of where we are today, which I find really strange, and I think that has really significant consequences in the world. Which is, if you're an asset holder, like yeah. money ends up naturally flowing into something that you can't print. And, you know, you can't print houses, you know, you can't print stocks. So like all we're getting all this asset inflation and here we are, a lot of us think we're really brilliant um, stock market investors. When in reality, if you just map the money supply to the rise of the stock prices, you know, there's a beautiful correlation there. And really the game has become about buying anything other than money, like so hold anything other than money. The money print, I think particularly people that aren't in finance, but don't read a lot of, of, of info regarding money supply will have this view that central banks print money and then they just give it to people sort of like helicopter mm-hmm. money, which has happened in, in small amounts of late mm-hmm. through various mm-hmm. fiscal programs, particularly through COVID. But by and large, it's sent, the, the money gets printed, uh, commercial banks buy bonds, then the, the Fed Reserve or, or the various other central banks buy those bonds off the commercial reserve and then money just sits in almost a ledger account between the commercial banks and the, the various central banks, which just rips velocity of money completely out. So we see no inflation in wages or day-to-day living, but we see huge inflation in asset prices, which is yes. is what you're speaking about, which which uh, is a huge cause for the, the inequality we're seeing all around the world. There'll be MMTs or, or People that will say two things. Well, firstly, we need to create money not by central banks printing it, by, but by commercial banks loaning it into existence, getting the velocity of money up, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which will then in, improve life for the worker. We'll get some, some wage price inflation and some, some CPI inflation as well, which can be a good or bad thing depending on how you view it. Um, mm-hmm. And it feels like more fiscal stimulus is coming down the pike, particularly in the States, and the rest of it will follow. How do you view that? sort of societal impact if this money creation was going into the pockets of workers and create, creating wage inflation as opposed to asset price inflation, do you think the problem that Bitcoin is solving would be as 
as great if that were the case and if that comes down the pike? Look, I think that's almost like putting just lipstick on a pig because at, at the at the end of the day, we, we, we're not, it's, I mean, you know, anyone who sort of looks at systems from a holistic standpoint will sort of really um, understand this piece now is that when you create any form of inflation, so I, I think the MMT is uh, kind of a little bit on a better track because instead of creating just pockets of asset price inflation, which really starts to tear at society, yeah giving it to people is probably it's kind of like a step in the right direction, but it creates like any form of inflation, even when it comes down to like wage price inflation, everything that's going to then filter through the, um, the, the economy anyway, by then increasing the price of the everyday goods that we buy anyway. So, so it kind of, it becomes this game of like almost like musical chairs, which is who can raise their prices quickly enough anyway to kind of, um, meet the rising price of wages and all this sort of stuff. And, and it, like, I don't know, if you, if you look at it on a holistic standpoint, it's not solving any problem. It's just perpetuating the same issue we've got is that we're not cre- increasing productive capacity. We're just starting to raise the prices of everything. And we kind of start to become, I mean, you know, variations of Weimar Republic or Venezuela, which is, mm. you know, we've got more of this stuff called money um, buying less of real goods and services so so to me it doesn't solve anything like and and again it's it doesn't map to what money is supposed to represent which is our labor there's there's no point in having more money when it represents less of your labor and it almost flies in the face of how technological progression i don't know if um you've have you heard of um jeff booth and uh, his book price of tomorrow yeah so I'm doing a podcast with Jeff Booth over the next couple of weeks and he, him and I just wrote a, um, a piece in this new publication called Bitcoin Times. And he talks about how deflation is the force of um, progression. Mm. It's, it's perfectly normal to think that as we progress and as we create new things, as we get more productive, as we produce things better, their price naturally comes down. So it's really like, it, you know, the, the, these days we have these iPhones, which you know, now they, they've dematerialized, you know, a hundred different things like, you know, your camera, your calendar, your calculator, your all sorts of other things that you traditionally had to buy. Technology deflates stuff. And here we are, we've got these central banks and, you know, these governments trying to counteract almost like a force of gravity, which is things naturally get cheaper, but they're creating more money, which is kind of artificially making some things more expensive and some things cheaper. And like, we've completely distorted the pricing mechanism for everything. So nobody knows what anything's valued at anymore. And I think MMT is and all that sort of stuff missed that point. So they're going to just move the problem from one place to another. The value of the debt doesn't de- deflate though, does it? I mean, that's the thing that, that's the puzzle that, that is such a challenge to solve is that tech has just created such a huge amount of deflation around the world as of demographics um, yep, and yep. debt as well. But the system just doesn't work with deflation because we've got such an enormous amount of debt in both the public and private system. And if the world is deflating, in real terms, that debt's increasing and we've never seen this much debt before. So that seems to be just the arm wrestle that is so complicated as a as an unemployed ex-footballer to think, (laughs) how does the world get out of this? Because it's, um, it's quite a doozy when you look at it through that lens. It's it's a it's a big problem, man. It's a really, really, really big problem, and and the, it's it's just one of those things. It's at what point do we kick it cold turkey? 
because at some point the junkie is going to die. Um, and all we're doing is we're going to keep inflating. Like, so, so I, I'm, I'm not deluded enough to think that the government's any way, shape or form are going to stop inflating anything. So, you know, they, they, at some point there's going to be too much pressure. So I think UBI and MMT and all that sort of stuff is going to end up happening. Um, but all that's going to do is, you know, exacerbate the problem in a new way. Um, so at some point, the, the wheels are going to fall off this thing. And that's like, so my biggest concern there is how, like, how do we find a way to protect wealth? Um, you know, a lot of people get it. They're buying assets, they're buying houses, they're buying real estate, they're buying stocks, they're buying shares, they're buying indexes, they're buying anything they can. But you've got this thing here, and this is sort of where Bitcoin comes into the picture is it's, I believe that the most undervalued, underappreciated, most misunderstood um, new call it asset class, call it, define it however you will, that will ultimately suck up a lot of that excess liquidity because it has to. And I, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and suggest I know how this whole uh, debt bubble thing is going to eventuate. I'm probably more pessimistic than most because I just don't see a solution for it. Like, you know, I think we've sort of governments and society have almost signed a Faustian bargain with inflation, right? It's like, we've started on this path. The debt is so high now you can't turn it around. <laughs> like the, like no, the, anybody who turns around and says, all right, we're going to allow, you know, the natural, uh, natural deflation to sort of take hold is going to get crucified because then all of those debts, like you don't, what are you going to do with them unless you just default on the whole thing and we have the, you know, a global reset. So, so it's, it's a really hard problem that I don't think one that has a solution. And I think this is where sort of Bitcoin comes in. It's, it's almost this, this new financial network here and we can kind of build from scratch here. Um, and in the process, people have an opportunity to kind of buy almost like a stake in that network. It's, mm. all, it's almost I almost kind of envision it as the old world, like England is, you know, falling apart and the monarch is being a crazy bastard. And, you know, it's the American forefathers gone to America and they found this new land and they're starting to develop, you know, in Manhattan and you can buy a slice of Manhattan for a couple of skins. Um, and, and that's sort of where we are with Bitcoin. It's this new network, this new monetary sort of system that, you know, you can buy a stake in it now well before anybody realizes what this thing is valued at. And the beauty of where we are now in terms of the progression of the world is that anybody can buy a piece of this thing. Um, and, it, and, you know, it, it's directly, you know, measured as, as, as a kind of money or an asset. So you can personally, I, I call it, you can get rich, you can get wealthy in the process of like supporting a revolution. So again, I don't want to sort of go too deep down the revolution rabbit hole, but I just find it really, really interesting in that sense. And then as an asset class, um, you, you know, it provides the greatest upside, I think, anything the world has to offer today. You've mentioned a couple of times that it's, it's money. Is it money or is it gold? I mean, gold is fundamentally money. So I think, you know, so th this is just a better form of money. Um, now, again, it really comes back to what that definition is. I think maybe people kind of confuse currency with money and they sort of envision currency as this medium of exchange thing. And because people aren't really using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, they're like, oh, well, then it's not money. And what I kind of argue with that is money has the ability for you to use it 
in any of its three functions, store of value, medium exchange, or unit of account. Now, me personally, I use it for all three. Um, so, you know, we have, you know, contractors who work for us all around the world. Um, and they get paid in Bitcoin. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So like, cause that's so much easier. Like for me to go and pay someone in like, um, you know, Serbia or here or there, it's, yeah. it's a nightmare. Like, yeah. you know, so, so it's like, I can just send them some Bitcoin really quickly and it's, it's, it's easy. Um, so, so it is superior in medium of exchange. Like you can say anything It's just expensive anywhere. to transact though, isn't it? Not entirely. I mean, it depends how much, you know, the, so, so Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network is, um, you know, has these validators, which are known as miners. Um, and when you, when you put a transaction into the Bitcoin network, so it sits on a mempool, um, these miners have to include it in the next block on, on the chain. Now you include your transaction with a fee. And now you can set that fee to whatever you want. You know, I generally set the fee at like two or three Satoshis per byte. And what that effectively means is that it ends up costing me maybe 30 cents or 40 cents to send someone money anywhere in the world. So it doesn't really matter. And the beauty is I can send a dollar or I can send a billion dollars for 20 or 30 cents. It doesn't matter. Now, if I want to prioritize my transaction, I increase the fee and make sure that it gets included in the next block. Okay. And then I might pay five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks, you know. So, so that's when you're buying like, it on a when you're buying it on an app, that's prioritized, hence why the transaction fees a lot more than the twenty or thirty cents. Is that right? Um, no, not not exactly. So when you're buying it on an app, um, you're 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 paying an exchange fee. That's different. So that's like kind of like the money changer fee. Like if you're buying if you're swapping Aussie dollars for Euro, for example, you pay a percentage yeah. fee. So so that's different. That's to the exchange. Yeah. But on the Bitcoin network itself, um, every transaction that gets included in the blockchain um, also has a fee associated with it. So, so that fee is what people talk about when they say Bitcoin transactions are expensive, yeah. is that there's a limited amount of transactions that can fit inside the block. Yeah. And the way those transactions get prioritized is what fee anyone who wants to perform a Bitcoin send wants to apply to their transaction. So if I need to send money quickly, I just apply a larger fee in my wallet gotcha. um, and then the miners prioritize that. And the thing is long-term that fee is going to continue to increase because you're talking about sending money anywhere in the world that is irreversible on this autonomous global settlement network. Of course, that's going to get expensive. And so even once so, the 21 million Bitcoin have been mined in 2140 mm -hmm. or whenever that yep. happens, those yep. fees are still going to be, made by miners effectively so those miners are yeah, going exactly. they're going as long as Bitcoin's Indefinitely. going yeah exactly exactly and and that's where so so a lot of people sort of freak out about the whole mining thing oh what happens how do we incentivize the the network after the miners drop off and and this is again one of those things that when you think about the foresight of whoever satoshi was when he created this thing is he created like what's called an asymptomatic supply schedule so it a lot of Bitcoin was created in the beginning. So 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes, and then every four years it halves. So then it was 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes, 12.5 uh, Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Now we're in the fourth epoch. So it's 6.25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And that gradually sort of halves until we reach that 21 million point. But throughout that time, the proportion of fees that the miners are earning increases from the from the transaction fees and decreases from mining fees and it's this beautiful sort of transition across to earning revenue for validating the transactions on the network through um through transaction fees not through um, block reward fees and that that's a really important 
part to understand because um, what that means then is you've, you've got this sort of sustainable base network um, and this is where we start to build things on top. So like, I don't know if you've heard of Lightning Network, but that's like a second layer piece that sits on top of Bitcoin and it uses kind of like a bar tab. So, you know, when you go to a bar, you, you, you give them a credit card, you, you know, they give you a card and you can just sort of buy all night. And then at the end of the night, you settle your bill. Okay. Bitcoin does the, Bitcoin does the same thing with lightning is that let's say two people want to transact. They both open up a channel. So they do one Bitcoin transaction then they can transact between each other millions of times. Um, and then they settle the net balance on the yeah. network later. So if you kind of think about Bitcoin in that sense, you can actually abstract throughput on a second layer and you have the ultimate medium of exchange. Like literally with Lightning, I can send you one Satoshi, which is 0.0001 of a cent instantly right now. Like I can do it over this phone call and you've got it. And it's like instant, it's fixed, it's secure, it's it's free um, because Lightning Network sort of, you know, has its own um, incentive mechanism that sits over the top. So it's just it's just wild to to think that somehow fiat money is superior to bitcoin when bitcoin sort of it scores a perfect score 10 out of 10 on every function of money i feel like satoshi's missed out on getting a few groupies and really leaning up do you think he should go go public and hell no <laughs> <laughs> do you think are there people that actually know who he is do you think like there's obviously people in this world who've been there from almost the start do you think they actually know who it or which group of people it is? Or do you think it genuinely is an anonymous person or people that no one knows? Look, I think the, the, the smartest and greatest thing that Satoshi ever did was disappear. I, I think to answer your question, if I had to guess, the closest guess I would say is Hal Finney. Um, and now he's frozen because he had ALS, um, which was a... a degenerative uh, neuro i think it's a it's both a physical and a I, I think it's actually more physical degeneration anyway so his he he was basically on his deathbed um coming into 2011 2012 so he was the first person to run bitcoin alongside satoshi okay um, now the question is was he actually satoshi was he sending okay. himself that message and you know popularizing that and then he kind of ended up you know because he got to the point where like he, you know he couldn't breathe or anything anymore so they they put him on ice um with the intention to maybe one day revive him in the future when there's a cure for als god so if i had to take a guess it's probably hal finney um or maybe a mixture of hal finney and a couple other guys but that's most likely um if we had to take it. otherwise it's yeah it's some group that definitely was inspired by hal finney by nick zaba by way die by a couple of those people like the, the dream of Bitcoin existed for, for decades beforehand. It was just no one cracked it um, until whoever Satoshi was. It's amazing. So we've covered a bit of ground, I reckon, already. If you're a, yes. a, a share investor watching this, what are the main things people should explore or, or get comfortable with if they're sort of sitting on the fence thinking about maybe taking the plunge? For sure. So I, I think, first of all, um, and, and we've kind of gone, like you said, on heaps of deep sort of tangents here is, is don't look at Bitcoin through the lens of a company. You're not going to find, you know, earnings and, you know, all of that sort of stuff in this. What, what you want to look at it is, is the money we're using in the world today, is it functioning properly or is it broken? 
And I think, you know, the, the more you look at it, the more you understand how money is supposed to function, the more you look at the fiat currency model that we live in, that paradigm that we live in, the more you realize it's, it's fundamentally broken. And, you know, we end up with a new type of fiat currency every, you know, 80 years roughly. Um, so if, if you can sort of get across that, then you realize that, all right, holding assets in general is a better place for my money. The last thing you want, like cash is trash, basically. So then you start to say, all right, where do I want to hold my cash? Well, you know, stocks and bonds and all that sort of stuff. That's great. But, you know, they're, all of those things are already inflated so high. Like it's very hard to find value um, in any of those spaces now. So all we're doing is we're sort of all chasing and, you know, we're, we're kind of like blindly chasing the same thing everybody else is chasing. So you then want to ask yourself is like, where is there asymmetry in the world? Like where is something, where, where's the next... Um, I call it the internet opportunity. I did I did a webinar with the university students the other week, and I called the the name of that um, webinar was "This Generation's Internet Opportunity." And you kind of you look around and you don't really find anything. You know, real estate is valued, you know, ridiculous, you know, multiples. Shares are valued at ridiculous multiples. Everything is, but you kind of come along to this thing called Bitcoin, and you say, "All right, money's broken." this thing has these particular attributes, which again, you can go and research further and kind of validate and build the trust for yourself that, Hey, this thing is a new form of money. It's not going after, you know, chewing up Amazon or Apple's marketplace. It's actually going after the, the monopoly that central banks have around the world. Um, is, does it provide a better, um, is, is it a better money technology? And I would argue that 100%, like it is the best money technology that we've had. And then you can ask yourself, well, if it's fixed supply and if it's a better money technology, what is likely to happen over time? Well, likely more and more people are going to want to hold this, whether that is people at the bottom of the rung, whether it's people like in Venezuela or in Ecuador, there's a place called Bitcoin Beach now, which, you know, they do everything in Bitcoin there. Um, through to the middle class, which is, you know, mums and dads who they're, they, they, they're not stock market people. They don't know where to put their money. And, you know, like I convinced my mom a little while ago to buy a bunch of Bitcoin. She's very happy now. Um, and like, it's, you know, that they want to put their savings somewhere. So you've got them. And then you've also got the large end of town. So your Paul Tudor Joneses, your, um, your Stanley Druckenmillers, your, I mean, uh, what's his name? Michael Saylor. Um, you know, I mean, he, he took, just bought another 50 million so that that's 475 million dollars off their balance sheet and they've put that into bitcoin as a treasury asset not as a bet not as an investment but instead of holding us dollars they're holding bitcoin i think that's one of the important things is there'll be some people that aren't going to be prepared to become bitcoin maximalists you know yep, after yep, a yep. month's worth of reading but yep, yep they understand the flow of money and they understand what causes companies or assets to get re-rated and when you mm -hmm. look at what's already happened to bitcoin probably this year those names that you mentioned um but you still don't have any pension funds holding it um some of the world's yep. best hedge funds are now when you still don't have any central banks around the world holding it as a reserve asset we know they hold a lot of mm -hmm. uh different countries bonds and they hold gold and they in various currencies yep. but in terms of you know i mean paypal choosing to, to use it and store it as, a, as a, a vehicle for payment on their system and network, which is astronomically huge. There's still mm -hmm. so many different milestones that are pretty easy to piece together in the next 12 to 18 months um, from time. pension funds buying. The first central bank, should, that, should they choose to use part of their treasuries and part of this as an asset class? Um, 
Mm-hmm. You can see where the re-rating can come, even if you're not of the view that this is going to transform our, our financial system, don't you think? Absolutely. So, so and, and what you're defining there is actually how early we really are with Bitcoin. Yeah. Like I always get asked the question is like, oh, you know, it's 20 grand now, am I too late? And I'm like, nah, man, you're, you're sort of, you're right at the point where we're moving away from, um, like Bitcoin has now proven itself. Like the, the the best hedge fund managers around the world, like public companies are starting to put it on their balance sheet. Mm. And and what I kind of argue now is, you know, two, three, four years ago, you could have argued that, hey, it was a risk to buy some Bitcoin. Now it's actually a risk not to buy any Bitcoin. Like if you're like, if this thing really starts to take off, which it's showing, you know, these signs um, and you've got this finance supply asset with more and more capital coming towards it from every strata in society, from the poorest to the middle class to the richest, they all want a piece of this. It's going to put upward pressure on something that has a diminishing rate of, you know, new issuance. That's like this fixed supply. Mm. You're going to be asked if you're a CFO, if you're a, you know, if you're a financial controller, if you're a broker, if you're anyone in the financial industry and you haven't taken Bitcoin seriously in five years time, your job's going to be in question and people are going to be asking you, what the hell were you thinking five years ago, not allocating something mm. to this asset class. So, so now I think the risk is greater not to take this seriously, not to have some skin in the game. Like I always, like, I love the idea of skin in the game, like Taleb, uh, Nassim Taleb obviously mm. popularized that uh, notion is that having some skin in the game with the Bitcoin thing is really important. And it's actually, that's really like why I built Amber is, like I wanted people to get some skin in the game, even if it's just 10 bucks a week, who cares? Do something. Like I always look back at my um, history is like, I went to university. I like, I got straight A's across everything. I think I was in the one percentile for um, my HSC and I like I was doing physics, math and all that stuff. I got a bunch of scholarships um, for uni. I then took my scholarship money and I traded the market and I was trading derivatives back in 2007, back when like the early days of, um, Westpac broking was still out like with the big, you know, uh, white screens, you know, the computer screens, the big chunky things. Yeah. And, um, and I turned like five grand into 60. And then in the space of six months after that, like I got my first, you know, major lesson in bear markets and I turned my 60 into minus $250,000 in the space of 12 months. <laughs> so that was sort of like between 2007 and 2008. And I mean, then I kind of, that's when I sort of went down the rabbit hole of understanding how money's created and QE and all this sort of stuff. And then I made a bunch of money out of gold and silver in 2011, 2012. I rode that from like the bottom all the way through to the top. And it's funny, like all my life, I've sort of been involved in markets and I've made money, lost money, made money, lost money. But if I just did one thing, which is if I just bought Amazon mm. 10 bucks a week from the beginning and stopped like trying to be a genius, trying to beat the market, I would be so much wealthier right now. It's not even funny. And that's where sort of Bitcoin is right now. Bitcoin is Amazon in 1996 or, you know, maybe 1994 or whatever, like when it first started, like we are so early and, you know, get some skin in the game now. That's, that's what, you know, I was trying to be a genius and I wiped myself out. Um, And I, I think the amount of, I'm probably net after 12 or 13 years of messing around on the market, like I'm probably square um you know after having lost a quarter of a million to begin with and made a bunch of money lost a bunch of money so it's just when i think about all i had to do was just dollar cost average (laughs) so much better and and that's what you want to find you want to find asymmetry and then you want to sort of accumulate over time Um, and i think bitcoin provides the best opportunity for that today 
it's a great place to finish. Where can uh, where can people find more of your stuff if you're if you're writing and uh, and what's your Twitter handle? Sweet. So my Twitter handle is just my name, Alex Svetsky. So it's A L E K S. So it's spelled a bit funnier than Svetsky. S V E T S K I. Um, my medium, I, I implore people. So my 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 Twitter is a little bit abrasive. So just be warned. I am um, I'm always at war with someone over there. But that's kind of <laughs> the best. <laughs> that's the medium for it, isn't it? Exactly. It is. It is. It is the medium for it. So um, if you want to find the more measured and um, you know thoughtful Alex, go on Medium. So it's just svetsky.medium.com. And then there's um, there's a series of blogs there where I kind of take people through all sorts of like Bitcoin through an economic lens, Bitcoin through a philosophical lens, Bitcoin through a um, you know industrial lens, Bitcoin through a you know how, how um, society changes lens. So all of that sort of stuff I think is really important. Um, I would the, the the team also wanted to do a little special for yourself and all the listeners. So um, if you download Amber and you buy some Bitcoin on there, I think it was fifty bucks or whatever. Um, so if you kick off. We'll chuck in an extra ten bucks if you put in the the code Talk Your Book. There you go. Um, Thank you. So we'll we'll run it for December, so that way right. people can sort of download it and um and and get that free ten bucks. And um and yeah, like I, I literally implore everyone to to get some skin in the game, start reading, start understanding this. Um, you know, you're gonna get distracted by what we in the industry call shit coins. And again, like I I look at Bitcoin very separately to crypto. Um, I look at crypto as just private fiat so you've got government fiat um, and then you've got private fiat and private fiat is just people who think that they know better they're like you know whether it's ethereum whether it's any of these other things they're like government bad they're printing their own money we're better we print our own money so it's like they they haven't solved anything they're just doing the same thing they just think they're smarter Um, whereas bitcoin sort of stands like head and shoulders above everything which is here's this network it's above reproach nobody can change it um, it provides all these guarantees of, you know, fixed supply of 10 minute blocks of this and that. So it's, we can now all, you know, have a piece of this network and, and yeah, I, I really, if, if anyone wants to reach out to me, hit me up. Like if they want resources, I'm always open. I'm kind of, you know, I, I th- there's a greater mission here for me and yeah, I, I really appreciate you having me on and sort of being able to, to spread that um, message. Awesome, Alex. Really appreciate it. I've loved it. Thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. Take care, man. Cheers, mate. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.